0: Hello and welcome to The Penguin Podcast. I'm Connie Huck and in this episode I'm joined by an author who's been a radio scriptwriter, voiceover artist, TV presenter and copywriter. Her debut novel, The Chalk Man, was part of a furious bidding war and she's been named by The Guardian as one of a new breed of British crime fiction writers who are making huge waves abroad as well as at home. She is CJ Tudor. Hello. Otherwise hello as Kaz. Shall I call you Kaz? Yes, please call me Kaz. It feels weird do. to be called CJ, actually. Yes. Okay, Kaz it is. Welcome, Kaz. And you have brought along a number of objects that have influenced and inspired your latest I book. have, yes. So we'll be taking a look at those later. Cool. So, Kaz, tell us a little bit about The Chalkman. The Chalkman is a very
1: creepy Coming of Age murder mystery. It's set between 2016 Mm -hmm. and 1986, and that's when we first meet 12 year old Eddie and his gang of friends. And they invent this game, which is drawing sort of chalk figures and symbols on the ground to pass secret messages between their gang. But it turns sinister when the chalk figures start to appear on their own, Mm -hmm. and it culminates in the figures leading them to the body of a murdered girl in the woods. It's a brilliant conceit for a book.
0: I mean, even you just saying that little uh, but synopsis there, it's so intriguing. And you've always wanted to write, haven't you? I have, yeah. Since you were young. So what spurred you on to write this book? Was it the timing or did the right idea just come to you? How did it all come about? I've always loved writing, but then life kind of got in the way. <laughs> you know, I was writing
1: for a long time and mm-hmm. I had a lot of close but no cigars and, you know, yeah. and rejections and, and almost theirs. And then... Like I say, I think a lot of things came together at once. The idea for The Chalkman just came to me really quickly. Mm-hmm. I wrote it really quickly. And sometimes I think with with publishing as in everything, it's people are just looking for something a bit different. Yeah. And I think I didn't really change while I was writing, but perhaps I just hit it at the right time. And publishers were just looking for something just a little bit different from what was currently on the market. Brilliant. And once you signed, because
0: we mentioned already, there was a bidding war. How exciting I know. is that?
1: I mean, wow. <laughs> it's what every author dreams
0: of, isn't yeah. it? It's the bidding war. The bidding war. Uh, you have got a two book deal and you're already on to your third book. Do you feel that it was sort of like the floodgates opened or once you started writing, it just all came out? Is yeah. that
1: Really? I've always had loads of ideas. Mm. And it's just nobody wanted to read them before. (laughs) They did. You just didn't (laughs) know. This is it. Now I'm just like, keep writing, keep writing, because I'm kind of compulsive. I can't stop writing. So it's like I finished that book. I have got this great idea for another one. I might as well start. You're a publisher's (laughs) dream.
0: Well look, let's step into the world of the chalkman with an extract from the audiobook, starting at the very beginning. And this is read by the wonderful Andrew Scott. I know. I'm like, (laughs) wow, I'm so excited. Yeah.
2: 2016. Started the beginning. The problem was, none of us ever agreed on the exact beginning. Was it when Fat Gav got the bucket of chalks for his birthday? Was it when we started drawing the chalk figures, or when they started to appear on their own? Was it the terrible accident? Or when they found the first body? Any number of beginnings. Any of them, I guess, you could call the start. But really, I think it all began on the day of the fair. That's the day I remember most. Because of Waltzer Girl, obviously, but also because it was the day that everything stopped being normal. If our world was a snow globe, it was the day some casual god came along, shook it hard and set it back down again. Even when the foam and flakes had settled, things weren't the way they were before. Not exactly. They might have looked the same through the glass. But on the inside, everything was different. That was also the day I first met Mr Halloran. So as beginnings go, I suppose it's as good as any.
0: That was The Chalkman by C.J. Tudor, read by Moriarty. Reading your audiobook, how does I that know. feel? <laughs> I, I've got,
1: I'm so chuffed. When I heard he was going to do the audiobook, I was like, Yeah, oh Oh my goodness! That's
0: amazing. Yeah, After the bidding from, war, the book deal the, yeah, the ice. I know. On <laughs> so, with this audiobook, we had to be quite careful when choosing extracts because the novel is all about suspense and thriller. Has that always been your bag? Would you
3: say?
1: Yeah, I've always read dark, creepy mysteries, thrillers. I was reading Stephen King when I was about
0: eleven. I kind of skipped right. the, the Judy Blume yeah. phase. <laughs> what is it about this genre that you love so much? Do you think?
1: I don't know. I think we all like being a bit scared and the nice thing about thrillers and mysteries in some way is they normally have a resolution and often real life doesn't have a resolution so it's quite nice to have a mystery that gets tied up. And It's also got
0: some sort of horror tropes in it. Would you a call bit, yes. it a horror or a thriller? I think it's
1: it has got a, a little bit of horror in it. It is a bit of a hybrid and mm. I quite liked mixing that up but yeah but I say I always loved Stephen King so I like upping the creepier bit and having a bit of horror in there
0: but but at its heart it is it is really a mystery. Mm -hmm. Well that brings us on nicely to your first item which I do believe is a Stephen King book. It it is. (laughs) So when did you first start reading Stephen King? I think the first Stephen King book I read
1: was Christine uh, when I was 11. The book I've brought in I don't have the original of that anymore so I brought the original of The Dead Zone because I think that was one I think I read next. Mm -hmm. It kind of cemented in my mind what I wanted to write. I'd been yeah. writing quite creepy stories anyway, encouraged yeah. by my English
0: teacher at the time, but that
1: really cemented this.
0: Yes, this is this is the sort of thing I want to write. Well, there are some pretty terrifying parts in your book. What sort of reaction are you hoping to get from your readers? I'd like them to be creeped out and scared at times, obviously, because mm. there are some
1: little creepy bits in there. I'd also like them to be intrigued, obviously, with the story. but But also... I like to think it's it's also about the people, so I hope they would yeah. warm to the characters, because ultimately, it's not scary unless you care about the people it's happening to, I think. Are you also sort of trying to
0: throw people off the scent, like keep people guessing twists and turns? Well, yeah, and-
1: yeah. I mean, obviously, there's in any sort of thriller or, or mystery, there has to be misdirection and twists yeah. and turns. The phrase is you have to earn your ending. I right. think a, a yes. twist is no good unless people can kind of, there's breadcrumbs along the way. Yep, if absolutely. That makes sense.
0: No, totally. Okay, well, let's have another listen to The Chalk Man. And in this extract from the audiobook, Eddie is trying to make sense of recent events.
2: The house is empty when I return. Chloe's either gone out to meet friends or maybe she's at work. I lose track a little. Chloe works at some alternative clothing shop in town, and her days off vary. She probably told me, but my memory's not as good as it once was. This worries me more than it should. My dad's memory started to fail him in his late forties. Small things. Things we all tend to dismiss. Forgetting where he'd put his keys or putting things in odd places. Like the remote control in the fridge. And a banana in the sideboard where we kept the remotes. Losing track of sentences halfway through or mixing words up. Sometimes I would see him struggle for the right word only to replace it with something similar. As the Alzheimer's got worse, he would mix up days of the week and finally, and the one that really frightened him, he couldn't recall what came after Thursday. The final working day of the week totally eluded him. I still remember the look of panic in his eyes, losing something so basic, something that we all know from childhood when he was finally forced to admit that he was not just absent-minded and was far more serious. I'm probably a bit of a hypochondriac about it. I read a lot to keep my mind sharp and do Sudoku, even though I don't particularly enjoy it. The fact is, Alzheimer's is often hereditary. I've seen what the future holds and I would do anything to avoid it, even if it means cutting my life shorter than it might otherwise be. I throw my keys onto the rickety old hall table and glance in the small dusty mirror hanging above it. There's a faint bruise blooming on the left side of my face, but it's mostly lost in the hollow of my cheek. Good. I could do without explaining that a man in a wheelchair beat me up.
0: Memory is actually something that you tackle pretty head-on in the book. Not only Alzheimer's, but the act of remembering. So Eddie's piecing together a story for us... It's a really, really good device to keep us on our toes, isn't it? The potentially unreliable
1: narrator. Yes. Well, you know, obviously that you know there is a thing with unreliable narrators, and, and, and writing a first person means obviously you can use that more effectively. But yeah, the whole idea that that his memory itself is fallible too, I think, plays into that. I sort of drip feed it. I, I didn't want to make it too obvious, but it's again helps to sort of unbalance his recollections what what he's recalling really what's really a true memory Mm. I mean even even with a perfect memory we don't if you ask two people they wouldn't remember something in the same
0: way yeah and it works so beautifully because you're writing across two timescales as well yes 1986 and 2016 um how difficult was that and also what other research did you do I think, interestingly, it
1: because cause I was a teenager in the 80s, mm. a lot of it was based upon my own experiences, my own memories. I'm still friends with a lot of the, the girls I knew since we were seven. So, you know, we talked a lot about it, stuff we remembered from that era. Some things you have to double-check, because occasionally you'll think, oh, now I remember that film. What year was that out? But a lot of it was experience and stuff I really remembered from
0: that time. Right, Yes. Yeah, that's perfect. Research your brain. This is it. Yeah. <laughs> OK, so let's move on to your next object, which yeah. is... A very important one. The box of coloured chalks. This is where it all yes. begins. Yes. Well,
1: the whole book came about because for my little girl's second birthday, a friend of ours bought her a box of coloured chalks. And we went outside the next afternoon and we started drawing all these chalk figures over the driveway. We covered the driveway. My little girl wanted to draw these little stick men everywhere. And then we went in and forgot about them. Then later that night, when it was dark, I went outside again to let the dog out. And I was suddenly confronted by these weird chalkmen everywhere. And in the dark, what was innocent suddenly looked really, really sinister. And I actually said to my partner, these chalk men look really creepy in
0: the dark. And the light bulb sort of went, bing! And light bulb moment. could be an idea there, yeah. And that's where it all began. And the chalks act as a McGovern, don't they? A sort of device yes. that yeah. Alfred Hitchcock and many of the greats favoured, where the object is a motivator to lead yes. the character's actions. Did you base the story around the chalks? Or did they help you to develop the idea or some ideas that you already had?
1: I think once I had the idea of the chalk game, that, that idea of this childhood game that then becomes sinister and leads mm. to something else, it kind of went from there. And then very quickly, the idea of the gangs, the friendship, the doing it sort of in the two time scales seemed to work from Fall there. That, that really was the motivator mm. and everything fell into place quite, quite naturally. Mm.
0: And you use coloured chalks. You said your daughter got coloured chalks. The absence of colour is very present. So the white chalk figures... There's a, a white, very pale man, and albino. Yes. There's a white cottage. Were you sort of trying to invert darkness, which is sort of normally significant in this genre, or is it just all a coincidental thing? Am I reading oh, too well, much well, into? Oh, well, not consciously, I don't think. But no. let, but let's say that because that sounds
1: yes, quite that sounds quite literary. Well, the thing was, all the kids in the book for their messages had a different colour of chalk. Mm. So none of them used white. So the white figures were, in a way, the sinister figures. The white chalk men were the Mm. sinister figures that appeared from somewhere else. And obviously with with the the albino teacher, Mr Halloran, Mm. the idea that his nickname was the chalk man as well. Again, it kind of worked on both levels of the chalk man. So I think that was where the idea of the white sort of chalk came from,
0: really. Got you. Well, let's go back now to the audiobook of The Chalkman, written by C.J. Tudor. And in this extract, young Eddie extends his love for collecting things with a trip to the shops.
2: Read by Aza Butterfield.
4: 1986. As kids, Woolworths, or Woolies, as everyone called it, was our absolute favourite shop. It had everything you could ever want. Isles upon aisles of toys from big expensive ones to loads of cheap plastic crap which you could buy tons of and still have change left for the pick-and-mix counter. It also had a really mean security guard called Jimbo, who we were all pretty scared of. Jimbo was a skinhead, and I'd heard that beneath his uniform he had a load of tattoos, including a huge swastika on his back. Fortunately, Jimbo was pretty useless at his job. He spent most of the time loitering outside Smoking and leering at girls, that meant if you were smart and quick, it was dead easy to avoid Jimbo's attention by just waiting until he was distracted. Today my luck was in. A group of teenage girls was hanging around the phone box just down the street. It was warm, so they were wearing miniskirts or shorts. Jimbo was leaning against the corner of the store, a cigarette dangling from his fingers, tongue scraping the floor, even though the girls were only a couple of years older than me and he was like 30 or something. I scooted across the road and walked straight through the entrance. The store spread out in front of me. Rows of sweets and the pick-and-mix counter to my left, to my right, tapes and records. Straight ahead, the toy aisles. I felt a flutter of anticipation, but I couldn't savour it or linger. One of the staff might notice. I walked purposefully towards the toys, scanning the rows and assessing my options. Too expensive, too big, too cheap, too lame. And then I saw it. A magic eight ball. Stephen Gemmell had one. He'd brought it into school one day and I remember thinking it was ace. I was also pretty sure that Fat Gav didn't have one. That alone made it special. As did the fact it was the last one on the shelf. I picked it up and glanced around. Then in one swift move, I slipped it into my rucksack
0: ha ha, ha ha, the crime has been committed. There are a huge amount of 80s references in the book. Yeah, Woolies pick and mix, yes. which I remember so well from my... It's very evocative. Why did you choose this period?
1: Um, Partly because I knew it so well, I think, and partly because the timescale seemed to work. I'd say I wrote the book in 2015, and so the timescale of 30 years between sort of events then and and when Eddie is is older because Eddie's 42 in the book, so again mm. similar age to who I am now yeah and so those those ages seem to work quite well for yeah, the time scale definitely. really it's sort of you know it's funny there's a lot of 80s stuff about now but it, at the time as you know, it wasn't intentional it just seemed to work for the book really yeah 80s retro is so I know. in the fashion <laughs> Stranger have Things on
0: Netflix I mean was it really enjoyable sort of reminiscing back to oh, the yeah, days I loved and it. researching yeah it? I really loved it it was it was
1: great just all those memories the things I remembered kind of reliving it a bit and mm. I say because I know a lot of my friends from that time I'm still friends with the girls yeah. I grew up with so we, we chatted about stuff we remembered at the
0: time yeah so it was a lot of fun doing the 80s stuff. It adds an stuff. extra dimension, I think, to the yeah. book. I enjoyed thinking back to Why do we enjoy looking back like that so much, do
1: you think? It's weird, isn't it? I suppose there's always a time, I think particularly when you're a kid and sort of pre-teen, where it's quite an influential time in your life, yeah. isn't it, that period? Perhaps you've just started senior school
0: and you're yeah. not quite a teenager yet, but you're not really a, a child it's anymore. It's the time that shapes you to yes. quite an extent, isn't it? OK, so on to your next object now. Yes. What do we have here? Is that a photo of you and your friends? It is, yes. Did you have your gang? Well, yeah, we did. Going around the block on the bikes.
1: A lot of the girls I know now I've been friends with since I was seven. Near our school, uh, we lived in, like a new housing estate, so mm-hmm. it was built sort of near woods that hadn't been developed yet and fields and we'd take our bikes or whatever and go up there and yet we'd build dens and like imagine story there was always a story about some creepy man who'd been seen in the woods yeah or something weird in the woods so you'd secretly go there and hope that you would find something creepy or weird um so we used to do a lot of that and I was talking to my friend about there was what we called the old air raid shelter that was at the back of one of the playgrounds we went to. Mm-hmm. It was the bottom of this old house and its overgrown garden, and it obviously wasn't. It was like an old Anderson shelter or something. Yeah, but inside we used, to, we used to sneak through the fence and sneak inside, and it was full of like these old newspapers, like dating back to the 1950s, wow. and this old silver cross pram, and the pram in our heads looked like it had bullet holes in. <laughs> yeah. So we used to really freak ourselves out about that. All those weird things you did as kids.
0: (laughs) Yeah. There's something really fascinating and fun about the dynamics of a group of teenagers. And they're sort of like... Your friends at that age are like a sort of another family to you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Did did you enjoy creating and also ageing the characters? Yeah, it's it's
1: interesting because I think... uh, In some ways, I don't think... And I see it with my friends... Sometimes inside you don't change that much mm. from kids. You just get taller, <laughs> yeah. and you're able to drink. You sort of you still have the same things inside, the same fears sometimes, and the same insecurities, and so on and so forth. So it it was it was fun sort of aging were, them up. Were the characters based on your friends in particular, or is it not? Just a yeah, sort of no, mish-mash? Not, not really. It's sort of a mishmash. Yeah. They're definitely not really based on any particular characters, but the dynamics in a group of friends, I think, is similar because. Within a group of friends, you'll often have... come loud ones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then there'll be a fallout, perhaps somebody get quite gone quite as well with someone else. Yeah, absolutely,
0: yeah. I get it. OK, let's hear another extract from The Chalk Man. And in this extract, set in 1986, the gang have built a den.
4: We sat cross-legged outside. Hot, scratched to ribbons, but happy. Hungry, too. We started to unpack our sandwiches... Nicky hadn't said anything about the party, so I didn't either. We just carried on as normal. That's how it is when you're kids. You can let things go. gets harder as you get older. Your dad didn't pack you any? Fat Gav asked Nicky. He doesn't know I'm here. I had to sneak out. Here, Hoppo said. He took a couple of his cheese sandwiches out of their cling film wrapping and handed them over. I liked Hoppo, but just then I really hated him because he got there first. You can have my banana too, Fat Gav said. I don't really like them. And you can share my juice, I said quickly, not wanting to be left out. Metal Mickey stuffed a peanut butter sandwich in his face. He didn't offer Nicky anything. Thanks, Nicky said, but shook her head. I should get back. My dad'll notice if I'm not there for lunch. But we've only just built the den, I said. I'm sorry, I, I can't. She pushed up her sleeve and rubbed at her shoulder. It was only then I noticed she had a massive bruise on it. What did you do to your shoulder? She pulled her sleeve down again. Nothing. I bumped into a door. She stood up quickly. I've got to go. I stood up too. Is this because of the party? I asked. She shrugged. Dad's still pretty pissed off about it, but he'll get over it. I'm sorry, I said. Don't be. He deserved it. I wanted to say something else, but I wasn't sure what. I opened my mouth. Something hit the side of my head. Hard. My world wavered. My legs buckled and I fell to my knees. Clutched to my head. My fingers came away all sticky. Something else whizzed through the air, narrowly missing Nikki's head. She screamed and ducked. Another large lump of rock hit the ground in front of Hoppo and Metal Mickey causing an explosion of peanut butter and bread. They squawked and scurried backwards towards the cover of the woods. More missiles rained down, stones and rocks, bits of brick. I could hear a hollering and whooping from the steep slope above the wooded hollow. I looked up and could just make out three older boys at the top of it. Two with dark hair, one taller and blonde. I knew who they were right away.
0: Bullies! (laughs) Please. <laughs> like you said that the characters aren't anyone in particular, yeah. but a mishmash. But did you have that sort of dynamic growing up where you were part of one group and then there's the other rival group? And was there any bullying in your school? Oh, I think
1: I think in all schools, there's there's bullying, whether it's outright bullying or or more subtle bullying. And and I think every kid I can remember from school, there were there were gangs of children, certain kids that you avoided. That you didn't want to get on the wrong yeah, side totally. of Yeah. Totally. You know, if there was if there was there was a certain playground they hung out, you didn't go there. Yeah. You went to another one because you just didn't you didn't want to get their attention because if yes, you got their that's attention, it. you want to go under the radar. Exactly. And and I think you have that in every school and and, and Sometimes it's not even that over. It's just no. they're a
0: bit tougher and they're and a just bit scarier looking. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, and you know, the character of Eddie, I love Eddie's character. Is Eddie in a tiny way sort of based on you, <laughs> worryingly, I do identify quite a lot yeah. with Eddie. It's hard when you've got yeah, a first
1: person. It is,
0: yeah. Protagonist. I mean, I
1: was I was a slightly weird kid. Or me and all my friends were. Perhaps mm. that's again the thing with sort of the book. None of us were exactly like I wouldn't call us the popular ones. We were all a bit odd in our different ways. Mm. I was quite obsessive about things as a child. I would have things that I was obsessive about. I did have a phase of collecting stuff and that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, you know, I think
0: quite often kids do. You know, and they it love it. Staff. I know that Eddie um, keeps all his collections yes. in the boxes and so on. Yeah. And I think as a child you just love that, don't you? Stupid sort of, things are really precious. I the I stuff you find as yeah. And, yeah.
1: I, just weird things you find as a child can be really important, like kind of treasure or something. Mm-hmm. Um so I do kind of identify with him in, in some ways and also sort of as he grows up, sort of the dark humour and everything. So yeah, I, I love Eddie. Yeah, of course I think you always identify a bit with with your sort of your main character, particularly yes. if it's first person. Ah, so were you stealing
0: things from wallets? Uh-huh. No, no. Uh-huh. Shh. Great. <laughs> moving on. Moving on. So a lot of what's scary in the book sort of t- taps into those fears that you have as a child: the bullying, the unknown things happening to yeah. our friends, and the deep dark woods. How much of that was sort of your fears as a child? There's so many things to be
1: scared of as children. Mm. But children are a weird conundrum. I mean you're scared of so much stuff like I say there that it could be the, the kids you're scared of at school, it could be the weird guy down the road you don't like, the stuff you're told to be scared of like the strange man in the car yep. with the sweets. Yet yeah, in another way you're really attracted to scary stuff. You That's want to true. see a ghost, you want to go to the woods and find something creepy. Yeah, it's in the exciting. Woods. It, it's somehow exciting as well. So I think kids kids are quite dark actually.
0: Mm. No, kids are quite right. dark really. Yeah, no, it's, it's very cleverly done. I know I said it, but just the way it, you know, taps into that kids thing, but then the years pass. And also our fears after years have passed is, growing old, not remembering things. So it neatly brings in a lot of youth fears and older people's fears into a big fear festival. (laughs) It's all fear. It's all fear. (laughs) It's all fear. fear. Now, the story is set in a small town where a lot of the characters are struggling to fit in. Mr Halloran, for the way he looks. Eddie, because his mum is setting up the abortion clinic, which has a lot of opposition to it. Would you say the town is also a character in the way that it's sort of... And a lot of horrors and sort of thrillers yeah. do this. That it's set in a small town where it sort of creates a sense of claustrophobia yes. for yeah. everyone.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the reason why a lot of horror and crime and so on is set in a small town. Because it it, it doesn't work so well, I think, in a, in a bigger environment. You, mm. you do need that claustrophobic environment you get in a small town. And it is, you know, the town of Anderbury in the book is kind of based a bit on the town where I was born, which is a small town in Wiltshire. Mm. They can be quite parochial, those small towns. A lot of people have grown up in those towns. They don't really go much further than that town. Sort of generations may grow up there and a lot of people know each other and each other's business. So, yes, you can get that kind of, like, if something changes, groups can go against it and people can get quite angry about small things or different people that come into their environment. It's almost like if a place is smaller. Things are magnified. Yeah, it's exactly that. I think really, that smaller things can become bigger issues, and yeah, people can can get, can be quite defensive and unfriendly. I'd like to say to to newer people or people who don't seem the same as them coming into this small environment. Did and you experience that, that times. at all growing up? I think it, I, I notice it sometimes more keenly, perhaps sometimes. Um, I mean, and you get it in all sorts of small towns, I think, sometimes when I go back from a bigger city to a smaller town, right. how sort of it, it is more enclosed. And as I say, you know, I'll, I'll go and speak to my mum and dad and people can be... They're up in arms about something. It would seem quite minor, I yeah. think, somewhere else. But in a smaller town... It becomes a bigger issue. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely.
0: Okay, well, we're going to move on to your next object now, which is a glass dolphin. This is an interesting (laughs) object that you bring with you. So whose is this glass dolphin? Well, it
1: belonged to my nan and granddad. I was very close to my nan and granddad and... We moved away from the small town I was born in when I was still quite young, actually about seven, but we used to go back a lot. Right. And um, we'd go back to visit my nan and granddad, so I spent a lot of time there still. Okay, I'm just going to describe the dolphin. A lot of people had these in their house at the time, those kind of glass things with the. Yes. the- Multicolours in them. That's
0: right. So it's yes. a sort of blown glass dolphin Absolutely. that's diving into the sea. It's this on a sort it. of aquamarine glass base, and it's a clear glass dolphin, but it's got a sort of stripe of aquamarine and a stripe of red swirled within it. It's very swirly. It says to me, "This is the era of lava lamps." <laughs> it really does. Yeah, I
1: always remember it in my nan and granddad's house when we used to go and visit, mm. and I was very, very close to my grandparents. Sadly, they're not around anymore. My little girl is actually named after my nan. They're both Betty. And the dedication at the front of the book is for Betty, both of them. So I I always kept that. And it's important to me. And it's it's a part of the book. And it's a part of my childhood which yes. is part of the book so it, all, it, it seemed like it was appropriate. Well <laughs>
0: what I love about the book as well is just sort of the little details that you threw in that really sort of bring the story alive. How important was it for you to sort of portray the detail of families and their difficulties and the breakdowns alongside the sort of main thrust of the story? The
1: characters are really what drive the story mm. so you know your characters should come first and in a way the plot then evolves from the characters. Mm. If you try and write a book that's all plot and then make the characters fit that, I think that's when the characters don't ring true. Mm. So the characters and their relationships
0: are in a way integral to everything that happens in the book. Because a lot of books I read, I don't really get to know about the individual family circumstances or, you know, they just sort of are taken with the main plot. And so that's very different. What what writers influence you, would you say?
1: I'm a huge Stephen King fan, obviously. I mean,
0: there are... You know, and I make no
1: bones about it, there are several cheeky nods to King books in The Chalkman, mm-hmm. which, you know, if anyone who's a King fan yeah, will probably will probably will notice love. them. And it's kind of my homage, in a way, to all the things I loved in the 80s, like Stephen King novels, Spielberg films, Goonies, Stand By Me, that type of yes. thing. But, yeah, I mean, Stephen King's always been a huge influence. I'm a big fan of a writer called Michael Marshall, who I love his books because he writes quite interesting thrillers and he's got a very dark sense of humour, which I really like as well. And I love Harlan Coburn because the twisty... Yep. Twist upon twist. I think he's a very clever writer. So, yes.
0: um, well, you're sitting in a chair that he has sat in on oh this my very goodness. podcast. Wow. So, you're definitely <laughs> following in his footsteps. So, the teenagers in the book, they're battling the unknown, aren't they? It's a horrible, unsolved event in their past, and they're battling it alongside their own domestic troubles. Would you say that you're sort of creating this pressure cooker for them? Because there's all these things going on, and it is really building up to a crescendo, and the reader is just thinking, Huh? What? You know, who? Who's done this? Who? What's going on?
1: I think that's it, because as well as sort of the, the big horror, in a way, that is building, there's lots of things going on in their lives mm. that are horrible as well. There's, there's you know, the, the, the hint of horrible stuff happening within Nikki, um, the girl, member of the gang's family. Yes. There's stuff that Eddie's dealing with within his own family. There's horrible friendships and, and, and fallouts within the group. The group fractures. Yes. And so I think there's lots of small and bigger tragedies, if yeah. that sort of makes sense, that inform the book on
0: the way to this growing bigger horror
3: that yeah. builds and builds. and
0: what it does brilliantly with all those little sort of subplots and the main plot is you really do get that sort of sense of time passing and where did it all go so fast? So in the book, the group suffer a loss of innocence, don't they? Yes. Which is something as well that yeah. I felt that I could very much relate to <laughs> now being in my 40s when I'm growing up in the 80s and it's in quite an extreme way. Are you just sort of, in a way, magnifying what we all have to go through? Again,
1: I think that period around 11 or 12, when you do lose that childhood innocence, you start to understand a lot more things about adult life and Mm. and it's probably more of a gradual process. But, you know, quite often at that age, perhaps something might happen, like you have to deal with a loss like a grandparent or something. You know, and it's more extreme for the children in The Chalkman, obviously. But I think it is very much a period of, of... of adjustment then, where totally. I say it's, it's that loss of innocence, which can be more gradual, it can be a more sudden event that suddenly brings it home that you're not a child anymore. And things you start to see things that you didn't as a child. It's almost like the veil slips away a bit yeah, and you, you realise that adults aren't perfect that, and
0: yeah, they lie
1: the and, and your parents are human too
0: and all that sort of thing. It's a difficult but interesting time, I think. Yeah, definitely. Well, in this final extract from the audiobook, The Chalk Man, Grown-Up Eddie is still trying to come to terms with childhood demons.
2: Sleep it off. I turned on my side and then onto my back. That would be good advice if I could sleep. I try to prop myself on my pillows, but it's no good. My stomach is a tight, nagging ache. I think I might have some antacid somewhere, perhaps in the kitchen. Reluctantly, I swing my legs from the bed and pad downstairs. I flick on the harsh kitchen light. It scours my sore eyeballs. I squint and fumble in one of the junk drawers, cellotape, blue tack pens, scissors, unfathomable keys and screws and a pack of ancient playing cards. Eventually I find the antacids, lurking right at the back along with a nail file and an old bottle opener. I take them out to find there's only one left in the packet. It will do. I chuck it in my mouth and crunch down. It's supposed to taste of fruit, but it just tastes of chalk. I walk back into the hallway, which is when I notice something. Well, two things, actually. There's a light on in the living room. And there's a strange smell coming from somewhere. Kind of sweet, yet sickly stale. Rotten. Familiar. I take a step forward and tread in something gritty. I look down. Black earth trails across the hall floor. Footsteps. Like something has shuffled, shedding dirt across the hallway. Something that has dragged itself from the depths of somewhere cold and dark and full of beetles and worms. I swallow. No, no, not possible. It's just my mind playing tricks. Dredging up an old nightmare dreamt up by a twelve-year-old kid with a hyperactive imagination. Lucid dreaming, that's what they call it. A dream that feels incredibly real. You may even perform activities within the dream that contribute to the illusion of reality. Like holding conversation, making food, running a bath, or other things. This is not real, despite the very real feeling of dirt between my toes and the chalky tablet in my mouth. All I need to do is wake up, wake up, wake up.
0: <gasps> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> oh, I mean, did you have to like map the characters and the plot lines out on a board and? you know, really sort of work it all out. How did you plot it? I'm
1: actually quite a disorganised writer. I just write and I just keep going and see where it leads and sometimes it goes off this way and then the other way and I find that keeps it interesting and so, when I was writing it, I did have an idea of the end, mm. but it went off in lots of different directions, and I changed things partway through, and I changed something, can go back and tweak it earlier. So, I'm not a planner. I, I can't plan. If I tried to plan, I'd get really bored. So, some of the things I didn't know how it was going to go. So, it's sort until of I organic. It is, I know. And right. not everyone can do it that way, and some people like to plan and plot, but I just like to kind of just go and, and see because where it ends up and then fix it that... in editing.
0: <laughs> right, OK, so you go back to it and then if there's any inconsistencies... you yeah, tweak it later on. You tweak on. it and yeah. change it. So yeah. Because that's what was interesting, Like, to do such a sort of complicated thing. Surely there'd be lots of things that didn't add up in the end, but yes. you just keep tweaking and tweaking till it's I do all... keep
1: worrying that, you know, if, if I ever read it again, I'll read through and go, oh...
0: <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work. That Doesn't work. Oh no, that's, I'm, I'm never sure someone would notice by now if something didn't quite add up. Do you let people see it along the way, like test it out on friends or your partner? No, or... you know my part. My partner's really critical of books. Actually, oh really, it's um, very critical. Which, which is actually quite
1: good, quite useful now. But when I was mm. at you know the, the slightly more vulnerable stage before, I didn't dare. Yeah, you didn't dare, need dare that show in your it. Life. <laughs> yeah, so I only let him read it after um, Madeline, my agent, had taken me on. Then it was OK for him to read.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it not matter, Because though. you've got an authority endorsing <laughs> you. You don't need him to endorse you. Do you have a writing process or something that helps you concentrate? Do you get writer's block ever, or does it just keep coming so up? So far,
1: thank God, no. I'm always having ideas. To the annoyance of my partner, I'm a bit like, oh, that would make a good idea. I write it down
0: quickly. Do you great. have a notebook where you literally... I know a lot I do of jot things soon. if I
1: can, but sometimes what I'll do is if I have an idea, I'll just sit down and write the first chapter. Really Ah. quickly. So I've already got it there in in sort of my head. So
0: have you got lots of first chapters of books to come? I've got got another couple, yes. Oh, your (laughs) agent will be listening, delighted, (laughs) rubbing her hands in glee. But uh, I don't really
1: have a process because I have to use to write wherever I could. Like, you know, when my little girl was lit and I was fitting it around, like really yeah. small, and I was fitting it around. So literally be in walking. a soft
0: play in I'm the corner writing a book while there's children propping. screaming around you, throwing plastic balls.
1: Pretty much. I remember propping the laptop on the top of the loo while I was giving her a bath once because I needed to finish something. i really, Tapping away on it. So, yeah, needs must.
0: <laughs> right, so you can write anywhere. You don't pretty
1: have much. to have be yeah. in your study or work. But I am lucky. I get to go and sit in a coffee shop now, which is nice. Yes. I can't write in complete silence. I find that quite distracting in itself. I like to kind of have stuff going on. Perhaps yeah, that's busyness. Because I've always had to do it when there's stuff going on. It's yeah, because you're
0: a mother. This you need, need have busyness. You need chaos. Yeah, otherwise things aren't <laughs> quite right. So on now to your final object, which is a dog collar. Is this yes. a dog collar? Yes. It is, yeah. Oh. Who's the dog?
1: It's, dog? Uh, it was. We lost our beloved chocolate oh. Labrador bourbon last oh. year, actually. Uh, she was 12, bless her, and I managed to go out and walk her. Yeah. It was always good, for dog walking for... Getting ideas in my head, and knotting bits of plot. Right. Um, so I used to do a lot of my thinking out dog walking. And I used to be a dog walker as well, so I used to walk other dogs. But yeah, a lot of time with Burb, and I'd go out and I'd think about books and stuff. And I used to go to a park where I knew the guy there. There was a pitch and putt, and it was a man there called Carl. And I used to chat to him because he used to give all the dogs biscuits. <laughs> and he'd say, How's the writing going? And I'd tell him all about my books. And I'd say to him, One day, one day I'll be a published author. <laughs> oh, you have to sign him a copy. Does he know, know now? He's in the acknowledgements. Yes. Oh. And he's, he's getting a Copy too, yes. He used really. to listen to me talk about my writing all the time. So, yeah, so that's why, yeah, that's why I brought the collar as well.
0: Now that you're not walking the dogs all the time, yes. wh- where do you do your thinking? How do you do your thinking? I try and
1: get out and just walk somewhere if I can. Yeah. Or sometimes I go to the gym or something just to have that away from the desk time,
0: mm-hmm. doing
1: some exercise or something just to sort of think.
0: Do you think that movement helps your creative process? Because we've had a oh, lot I of think writers. It does. Yeah, on the yeah. podcast, they say like they like to watch moving water or going oh, really? for walks or yeah. changing desks. Or we found a sort of running theme of movement helping for some does. reason to stimulate the thought process. I think the
1: worst thing you can do if you're stuck on something or you're a bit like, oh, is this working? Is to just sit there sometimes and stare at it. Mm. Sometimes you, you've got to step away and go and do something else, and then you, you'll find something will come to you because you've cleared your mind, and mm. then suddenly you seem to be able to tackle it better. Yeah, funnily enough, actually the second book I'd got to a point there were various factors actually and I started writing that before the chalk man oh really I got to a point where I was like I'm not quite sure where this is going
0: Mm. and
1: then funny enough that's when I had the idea for the chalk man so I thought you know I'm going to put that away and I'm going to write this idea instead so that's a long
0: block or being stuck but you're
1: not stuck because you're writing another whole book yeah so sometimes I will just go and write something else if I'm at a point where I'm not quite a bit like oh I'm just going to write something else and free up my mind but but normally, great. I've never been really, really stuck on something yet. <laughs> Touch wood. Touch wood, wood, yeah. I am
0: touching. So when you came back to. The first novel yes, after the break from the chalkman, did you find that having that time away suddenly it just came to you? Like, it did, and brilliant. by that point, as well,
1: by that point, as well, kind of um, everyone had read the beginning of that one because it was part of the two book deal with the chalkman. So I was kind of like, Well, I'm
0: committed to this now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got to find something to pull out the hat. But actually,
1: yes, yeah, suddenly I, I felt freed up and I knew what I was doing with it and, and wrote it quite quickly. Then,
0: and I you've completed that one now, yeah,
1: that one is finished now as
0: well, yeah. And so that's the two book deal, and then you've got a th- third book i am writing. because i right? thought why not you know keep going okay yeah why not when you're on a roll so the second book is the same genre crime yes. thriller with a bit of horror perhaps
1: yeah it's i'd say it's creepy it's definitely creepy definitely. again maybe a bit creepier than the Chalkman, maybe really? you like creepy I don't do like you. Creepy. is that going to be
0: thing <laughs> in all your books
1: i i don't think i could write anything that wasn't non, non non-creepy creepy. yeah i think it's got to be dark and i like I like sort of thrillers, mysteries. But as I say, I, I couldn't write like what I would call sort of a straight mystery or
0: crime novel. I like yeah.
1: it to be a bit a bit different, Horror-ish. a bit more weird. Yes. Yeah, taking a slightly different
0: path. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so what has been your favourite part of the whole writing experience?
1: I just love oh god I can't tell you how I always just say to everyone, it's like, you know, only just over a year ago I was walking dogs for a living. That's trying mad, to write isn't it? just over really a year weird. ago, that was your bread that and butter. That was my bread and butter. And, you know, looking after a little girl and and I'm trying to write still. So how you did they come about? It? Did you just send off to
0: different i did, and or I was, agents? I sent off
1: to agents. I was lucky how enough many? to get the... I think I only submitted to five initially. Wow. Okay. And the agent I got, fortunately, Madeline, was, was top of my list. And I, I had a gut feeling and it was like once it seemed to work out... Um, did you just
0: Google agents on the internet? I'd seen how did an you interview she'd
1: done for a website and I'd, I'd marked it down and that was how I I'd found her. I just thought she seemed the right person. And then wavelength. I did go through writing artists and, and picked a few others. Um, and I feel really lucky she saw the potential in the book. And, you know, we, we did some work on it because I think when you write in a bubble, it's it, you know, you, you, you need
0: input at some point to help you hone it, I think. So from you sending it off to her yes and her plucking it out from the, Plucked it pile from the slush pile yeah and <laughs> reading it and ringing you how long was that time duration I'd say well I submitted it initially I think
1: I wrote it in 2015 mm-hmm. initially submitted it late 2015 yeah then did some work on it I think I signed with Madeline in May the next year and then signed the book deal in September
0: so it was it was A whirlwind. It was a bit of a whirlwind. A whirlwind. A A bit of a whirlwind, yeah. And a very well-deserved whirlwind. It's a fantastic book and we're so... Thank you. No, my pleasure. (laughs) Thank you so much. We're very pleased that you came and shared your pearls of wisdom with us and I'm looking forward to the second and third book. Oh,
1: thank you. So, Thank you for having me very much. Thank you very much (laughs) and good
0: luck.
4: Need to Know by Karen Cleveland You go into work, you check your emails, download a confidential list of potential Russian spies, and your husband is one of them. What do you do?
3: I stand in the doorway of the twins' room and watch them sleep, peaceful and innocent, through crib slats that remind me of bars on a prison cell. A nightlight bathes the room in a soft orange glow, Furniture crowds the small space, far too much of it for a room this size. Cribs, one old, one new. A changing table, stacks of diapers still in their plastic. The bookcase Matt and I assembled ourselves ages ago. Its shelves now sag, overloaded with the books I could recite by heart to the older two, the ones I've been vowing to read more often to the twins, if only I could find the time. I hear Matt's footsteps on the stairs, and my hand clenches around the flash drive. Tight. Like if I squeeze hard enough, it'll disappear. Everything will go back to the way it was. The past two days will be erased, nothing more than a bad dream. But it's still there, hard, solid, real. The hallway floor creaks where it always does. I don't turn. He comes up behind me, close enough that I can smell his soap, his shampoo, the smell of him that's always been oddly comforting, that now inexplicably makes him more of a stranger. I can feel his hesitation. Can we talk, he says. The words are quiet, but the sound is enough to stir, chase. He sighs in his sleep and then settles, still curled into a ball like he's protecting himself. I've always thought he's so much like his father, the serious eyes taking everything in. Now I wonder if I'll ever truly know him, if he'll keep secrets so heavy they'll crush anyone close to him.
4: Vivian has vowed to defend her country against all enemies, foreign and domestic, but now she's facing impossible choices. Torn between loyalty and betrayal, allegiance and treason, love and suspicion, who can she trust? Need to Know is available to download from Audible, iTunes and Kobo from the 25th of January 2018.